0: You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early-stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on these podcasts. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Sunny Kumar, partner at GSR Ventures. And today we'll talk about going to Yale and Stanford, what are the major benefits of those top universities, how to benefit of them when you want to be a startup founder or an investor. And we will also talk about regulatory barriers for the healthcare field. So Sunny, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself
1: and on GSR ventures. Perfect, thank you so much, Constantine. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, maybe I'll start with my personal background as he noted. I uh, did my undergraduate degree at Yale where I focused in molecular biology and at the time actually very much wanted to become a research scientist and pursue a PhD. Ended up uh, th- after working on a couple of different projects being exposed to the, the medical side of the field and decided to explore that as a primary career. Did my medical training at Stanford uh, and uh, at that point had a branching decision to decide how I wanted to augment my medical background and expertise actually decided to go to business school at Stanford as well. Got my MBA from there. And that was a transformative inflection point for me. It actually exposed me to many different ways that I could deploy my medical skill set outside of a traditional clinical care arena. So through that, I actually ended up working on a startup of my own, uh, delivering and building a natural language processing technology platform for remote patient monitoring Uh, and through that found that I actually just loved the entrepreneurial world. There was uh, something deeply gratifying about building an enterprise uh, essentially from scratch and having a potential to impact hundreds of thousands millions maybe even tens of millions or more individuals far far more than i could impact um, individually as a clinician that led uh, me to develop my career more along that pathway and uh, that's how i ended up today at gsr ventures maybe a little bit of context on gsr we're an early stage tech focused venture fund that currently has about 3 billion dollars under management deploying out of our seventh main fund which is a 650 million dollar combined vehicle and looking to lead investment rounds in series a and series b stage companies our fund invests across a variety of different sectors including consumer enterprise and healthcare but i primarily oversee our healthcare technology portfolio where our core thesis is looking at opportunities to deploy emerging technology to deliver healthcare services far more efficiently and effectively than was previously possible and happy to tell you more about what that means uh, during this conversation
0: we'll definitely get to that part in a few minutes but first let's start with yale and stanford so you went to both of those and what's your major takeaway from those universities and you know, what's your uh what's the major thing you like there and the major thing you didn't like there
1: mm, that's a great question i think the um, benefit of having been able to attend those universities is that you get Two major things. One is that the amount of exposure to a variety of different sets of resources allows you to explore different types of pathways for yourself. I'll give you an example Uh, at Stanford, where I did my medical training. I would say probably about 80% of the class does not graduate in the traditional four years for a medical program. Uh, That's not because the, the students take just longer to go through the traditional program but because as part of the Stanford medical training, uh, almost every student chooses to augment their standard curriculum with something else. Many people will pursue a research focus, spending time in the lab and uh, working on fundamental questions. Many like me will pursue a dual degree, going to get an MBA, a law degree, a master's in public health, and others still will go for different types of work experience, working at a NGO or a nonprofit, volunteering their time uh, at an Indian reservation. And those types of experiences give you an opportunity to explore not only how you can be great at whatever that primary um, goal of yours is, whether that's medical school, law school, business school, but also how you can supplement that education in a way that makes you a uh, multifaceted person from a skill set perspective and allows you to build on that to do newer, more innovative things that require bringing together expertise across different domains. That's the first thing. The second, and you'll probably hear this quite often, is the network, Um, especially in certain areas of concentration like the Bay Area. um, Having a network of folks that you went to that you share an academic background with makes that first step of getting in contact with someone, building out that relationship a little bit easier. It's not it doesn't solve everything, just to be clear, but it helps that initial connection, Mm -hmm. which can um, create a tremendous amount of value in the long term.
0: Right. Yeah. I think of Yale and Stanford universities as like YC of the universities. <laughs> it's like whenever you put it on your uh, LinkedIn, it automatically
1: improves the response rate right there. It <laughs> probably has a similar effect. You know, at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneur that's going to make a successful company. But going through a program like YC or one of the other leading accelerators can really just help you get that jump start on mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is you hope to do.
0: Absolutely. So I know not too many of my listeners are actually university students, but like 10 or 15% are. So for Mm -hmm. those people who are still in the universities and thinking of becoming a founder one day or actually trying to start their companies now, what's your major advice? What is the thing you would
1: recommend them to do while they're still in the university? Uh, That's a fantastic question. I would recommend two things. One is identify an interesting problem. Uh, At the end of the day, every successful company that at least I'm aware of started to wanted to solve a big problem out there and uh, we certainly at gsr ventures have a bias as to what interesting problems are and there's a broad definition of what may be interesting to you but find something that you're passionate about and ideally something that affects a tremendous amount of people or causes quite a bit of uh, pain or challenge if you start there then the set of opportunities that you have to work on becomes truly immense. The second thing was actually quite related to that. Uh, Most of these problems will exist within a specific domain, but what we find Leads to the most impressive outcomes for startups is to approach that problem from more than one angle or more than one perspective. You see this in healthcare, in the healthcare technology space where I specialize. Uh, there's a lot that can be done from a med, uh, clinician's or a medical person's perspective to improve the system. But there's also a lot more opportunity outside of that. How do we bring technology? to the the medical world. And if you bring together your core perspective related to a a field, as well as a supplemental perspective, which you can build up as a university student, given you have such flexibility in how to organize your coursework, your experiences, that will make you a much more compelling entrepreneur and much more likely in my opinion, to be able to succeed in having a transformative impact.
0: All right, that's a great advice. And here, I think it's time for us to move on to the major Topic of our discussion today, which is the healthcare field. So I know that regulatory barriers are like very, very serious issue for the startup founders. How how do you see founders generally overcoming it, especially on those early stages when they don't have money to you know hire lawyers and you know, actually yeah. hire anyone? <laughs>
1: That's a great question. And I think it comes down to one thing that every startup founder has to deal with, which is focus. The more focused your solution, the more likely it is you can first know what all the challenges are likely to be when you decide to um, go after a certain problem and two gives you a, a better opportunity to be able to overcome those regulatory barriers but that by itself is not uh, an end-all be-all to this challenge um, regulatory barriers have historically been major challenges for startups to be able to come into this space to identify customers and sell effectively to those customers because if i'm a very large health system i don't want to take a regulatory risk by working with a smaller, newer startup. Mm -hmm. So part of that is also to explore what are additional ways to build out and deploy your solution in a way that can avoid running to some of those challenges. I'll give you an example. One new type of care that's growing quite significantly and is accelerated even further by COVID has been something called asynchronous telemedicine. I'm sure most of your audience is familiar with telemedicine now, certainly after COVID, given that majority of doctors appointments are occurring on telemedicine, but asynchronous Mm -hmm. telemedicine takes that a step further and allows you to get care from your doctor Without actually having to see that doctor face to face or video to video. Uh, Now, there's a challenge there is that the regulatory environment is not ready to reimburse for that type of care. Uh, No insurance plan that I'm aware of will um, at scale reimburse for asynchronous telemedicine care, but. Because this is a much more efficient way of delivering care, what some companies, including one that we invested in, Alpha Medical, has found is they're able to drop the cost of care so much that they're willing that they're able to get patients who are willing to pay out of pocket for that level of care. So instead of a traditional urgent care visit, which can maybe cost $100 even after having insurance, they're able to deliver care just total all in cost for about $20. And that allows for a new modality. They're not currently, at least selling to the big health systems, they're going directly to the consumer and saying, if you want this type of care, I can provide it to you more inexpensively than you would otherwise be able to access care.
0: Right, that's a really good point. You know, I always recommend starting on the small niche, whatever field you're working on, not necessarily in healthcare. but. When you start working at healthcare, I know that, I mean, there are just so many regulations there, even if you don't work with big Mm -hmm. institutions, there are still numerous regulations, which are extremely complicated. Question is, should you have some sort of education that field yourself or is it possible, or should you find a co-founder who has that education, or is it possible to actually self-educate on the fly?
1: That's a great question. I think at the end of the day, a team is stronger if they have somebody with the expertise to be able to understand the nuances of the regulatory environment, the healthcare ecosystem that can help the whole team navigate that space, Uh, but that's not a requirement. Uh, I think at, at some level, you can certainly teach yourself the fundamentals and make sure that you have a understanding of what is needed in the space, even if you yourself may not be the person who can navigate all those intricacies. One thing that we've seen is that many of the companies we work with have founders that come from a technical or an engineering background, not from healthcare background. So how do they actually solve that problem? There's two ways. One is that you actually find people who buy into the vision and actually want to support the company, even if they themselves can't directly be that co-founder and instead may wanna be an advisor to help support the company in those specific domains. The second is you actually find an investor or another party that uh, wants to get heavily involved with the company and can add that specific expertise. For example, in our partnership today, our healthcare team is entirely staffed by physicians, people who actually understand the nuances of navigating the health system. Just to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean I know every single regulation out there, but it does mean that uh, more often than not, I can tell you these are all the things that you need to be aware of when building out and scaling a solution in this space so that you don't run into that issue a year down the road uh, where you have uh, a possible risk of a regulatory violation.
0: Right, That's a very good plan to surround yourself with people with expertise, even if they're advisors. By the way, quick follow-up question here. This is some topic I can not settle down on. Uh, which is the compensation for advisors and mentors? Mm. What do you think is the adequate uh, you know, stock option pool that you should dedicate as a startup founder to those advisors and mentors?
1: That's a great question. Maybe I'll answer it directly and then tell you a little bit more about my perspective on advisors and mentors. So sure. for an early stage company, it is, especially one that hasn't yet raised funding, it is perfectly normal to see advisor grants anywhere from half a percent up to maybe even 2% of the company for someone who's gonna be actively involved in the company. For someone who's less involved or as the company matures, it's typical for those grants to drop down to about 0.1 to 0.5, in some cases, maybe about 1% total uh, capitalization of the company. But I wanna use this as an opportunity to expand on how I would think about advisors as particularly an early stage entrepreneur. Um, if I were to kind of divide the world into three buckets, you'll find that uh, there are many advisors out there who can um, add value to the company just by the the sake of their name or their pedigree. And those uh, advisors can be quite helpful to companies early on before they're able to really establish themselves and give them some credibility, make some introductions, but may or may not be able to actually um, add direct value in helping the company be successful. There's a second bucket, which depending on the space, may be the largest bucket of all, where the advisors, um, spend a little bit of time with you, but don't actually add that transformative impact and may or may not even have that pedigree. And I would urge entrepreneurs to be cautious when it comes to building out an advisor base. That's, uh, full of, uh, the people in that second bucket. The third bucket is what you really want to go after, and those are advisors who are deeply uh, committed to helping the company be successful. And we'll spend the time we'll spend the energy in order to make that company make that product make that go to market strategy work. Those advisors, in my opinion, are worth their weight in gold. And I would certainly be happy to uh, give up additional equity to bring those folks on board. But I would be cautious uh, when giving out equity too early around buckets one and buckets two.
0: Very big point And, Yes, there are numerous uh, advisors that are not really good advisors. <laughs> I'm not going to point fingers here, but I've seen plenty, and probably it's not too hard to see who is a real, you know, who really wants to help you and who just wants to take a small stake of your company and just get out of there. Uh, so just yeah. be cautious there. Well,
1: um, I, I would just maybe add that I do think most advisors are well intentioned, but not every advisor is going to be the the right fit for the company at that stage so it's worth in my opinion spending the additional time to make sure that the advisor the potential advisor that you're going to work with is somebody who can add value to the company at the current stage that it's um, in at the time if you're able to find that person they're absolutely worth bringing on from a equity allocation perspective
0: right right it's just like i've seen so many people who have you know, advisor on their LinkedIn profile. And I'm like, okay, whoa, uh, what what do you do? <laughs> Anyways, we're not gonna get too deep into that field, but one more follow-up question on advisory thing. Uh, how should you how should you structure that contract? Should an advisor say that mm-hmm. he or she will dedicate a certain amount of time for an X percent of the company or should it be like uh X amount of introductions or how how can that be structured?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Most advisory contracts do not have quantitative metrics uh, associated with them, whether that's a number of hours or a number of introductions or whatever else it may be. Uh, depending on the advisor and uh, the stage of the company, I actually would encourage the company to look into trying to get a formal commit. But honestly, even with a formal commit, it doesn't necessarily mean that that will actually end up being. What that interaction is like in practice. So what I recommend is, if possible, even before engaging formally, to try and um, in, try and find ways to work with that advisor uh, to see what they're like, to see how much time they'll spend with you. It doesn't have to be over multiple mm-hmm. months, but even just a couple of weeks to see what that engagement looks like. And then the next step is when you're actually designing that advisor contract. We recommend generally to take a smaller scope as far as the amount of time that you're looking for uh, the time. Line of that engagement. So instead of signing a three year advisory engagement, start with a three month or a six month contract and have the equity and compensation be scaled accordingly. And then after that period, if you're happy with the level of engagement, you can certainly look at signing a longer uh, arrangement with that advisor. This helps prevent cases where um, someone may seem like they could add a lot of value initially, but then that value drops off pretty quickly afterwards um, to prevent the company from maybe over allocating the amount of compensation to that advisor before that's discovered.
0: Perfect, that's just great advice. You no know, small steps, I always recommend small steps. But here, let's move back to the major topic of our discussion, uh, which is healthcare. And another thing besides the huge, awful, complex regulatory barriers that are there, another thing that I know of is a uh, long sales cycle. So whenever you start working mm-hmm. with actual, you know, uh, hospitals and similar big organizations, the sales cycle can take like up to a year. Uh, how do you yeah. see founders solving that issue and how, how can someone accelerate that process?
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And probably one of the biggest challenges in the healthcare tech arena is dealing with that long sales cycle. There are a couple that I've already touched on, which is looking at alternative ways to access your customers. So for example, instead of perhaps going through a large health system to get to the patients, trying to go directly to the patients, sometimes that works better than some of the other solutions out there. But at the end of the day, you have to look at what's going to allow your company to scale scale effectively and scale quickly. And in addition to the sales cycle being long, perhaps one of the biggest challenges is the pilot phase that is common in healthcare, with many startups that I see, particularly very early on, able to secure very impressive pilots, but having challenges converting those pilots into true commercial contracts. Uh, from my perspective, that's uh, usually caused by one of, or two things. The first is the most fundamental, which is are you solving a real problem for? the end customer? And are they seeing the right value from it? Unfortunately, a lot of solutions in the healthcare technology space are fantastic solutions. They create value for patients. They improve quality of care, but unfortunately do not create a a strong enough incentive for the purchaser of that solution to adopt it and integrate it quickly. Uh, I'll give you a, a broad example. We saw a lot of technologies being developed in the AI radiology space where they would Uh, where these computer vision algorithms would support the radiologists and diagnose uh, common findings on things like chest X-rays or CT scans. Um, All of the studies that I have seen have shown that these technologies often are just as good as radiologists, and radiologists using these technologies are often better than radiologists alone. However, the adoption of these technologies in the US has been relatively slow because they did not solve that fundamental incentive problem. They did not come up with a strong enough value proposition for the hospital system or even the radiology department to want to purchase these types of technologies. So I found that if you're able to solve that correctly, you're able to get much faster adoption than you would otherwise. Another one that is quite. specific to healthcare, although this does generally apply outside of healthcare as well, is making sure your solution integrates in a non-obtrusive manner. So perhaps the single biggest thing that I've learned working with companies selling to health systems or even talking to my colleagues in those health systems is that a solution needs to integrate into the workflow as seamlessly as possible. If you're able to solve that, you can probably solve somewhere between 50 to 70% of the adoption issues right off the bat. Uh, But if you don't solve that, that by itself can prevent a company from scaling up and having the type of impact it should, even if the technology uh, creates a tremendous amount of value. If it's not easily integrated, it's going to take a long time to get through that adoption cycle. Absolutely. So
0: another thing that I've heard founders complaining across all fields basically is getting in touch with those people. You know, they say... If Mm -hmm. only I could put my product in the hands of, I don't know, uh, manager of a hospital, I'm not quite sure, I'm not quite familiar with the the terminology there, but let's call them manager of the hospital, so you know someone uh, who's who's, uh, in charge of that place. How should founders with no connections in that field get in touch with people, like, how can they actually start working with hospitals and, you know, big uh, places like that?
1: Yeah, I would say there are three challenges with that. Uh, one is, as you noted, sometimes it's just hard to get in touch with that person, uh, just because it may be hard to find out who they are or figure out how to contact them. Uh, but there are actually two more fundamental issues in healthcare that actually make this particularly challenging. One is that uh, at every hospital or every health system, That person is different. The person who makes those buying decisions is different from system to system, hospital, hospital, maybe, for example, for a healthcare tech solution, the chief medical informatics officer, maybe the chief data officer, maybe the CFO, maybe the CEO, maybe the department chair, any of those persons in a system. Might be the decision maker, but in another system, they may not be. So that adds a little bit of additional complexity. The the last one is that even um, once you've identified the right person, that person may be getting so many of these prompts that it's difficult for him or her to be able to distinguish which one here adds true value and which one here is more hype than substance. So in order to figure out how to navigate that effectively, what I find is the best way to get in touch with the right people is to go to uh, conferences or events where that audience is going to be there. So for example, if you're selling a hospital cybersecurity product, the the healthcare cybersecurity conferences are gonna be the best place to find the right uh, KOLs, the right decision makers, We're going to be able to help accelerate the company. Now, of course, that's a little bit more challenging in the COVID area because these events are much, much less frequently done in person, but that will pass. And and when it does pass, I would encourage you to go down that route. Um, The last is to find a way to show that your product has value even early on. And that's. Usually by working with a champion or a stakeholder who sees the value of your product, who wants to use your product and is willing to do so, even if it's on a small scale, to show that this creates value and then have that champion who may just be a attending physician as opposed to an administrator, help carry your product to the right person. Eventually, we found that uh, our companies, including one in the uh, AI technology space called Ferrum, was very successful by going that down that route. They didn't go straight to the ultimate decision maker. They went to the person who would see value from this product, convinced them of the value of this product, and then worked with that collaborator and that clinical champion to bring the product through the, and the company through the right administrative channels to actually end up with a purchase.
0: Right. Champions (laughs) is a great way to go. And one more question I wanted to ask about this topic is I know there are I'm not sure if there are many tools for that, but I imagine that there is more than one tool uh, to get intros to people like, you know, heads of uh, hospitals. Again, I'm not not familiar with the terminology there. So my questions might sound weird, but uh, I know that there is a tool called hunters.io. I personally checked out their pricing plans and they're horrible. Honestly, like it's at least a thousand dollars per introduction, which is Insane, uh, but do you know any tools that you would recommend for founders to get in touch with particular people or just expand their networks?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question. And I have seen the rise, those those types of services have been around forever, but they've become more popular in the last few years. And I would generally agree with your assessment that in most cases they don't um, add as much value as you might like uh, for the the company. What what certainly works very well is if you're able to find a way to network to the person that you're looking at. Uh, even most doctors and healthcare professionals do use LinkedIn. So if you can find a way to get a warm introduction to those target persons, that can make things a lot easier. But the flip side of it also is that you know there, there are thousands, about 5,000 hospitals in the U.S. There are probably about uh, 10% of those, roughly 500 or 600, who are very open. To adopting technology so at the end of the day it takes just quite a bit of hustle to make sure that you're covering the the right ground reaching out to the right people um, making the connections whenever possible and not every connection is going to lead you to the right person at the end of the day but if you do that enough over and over again with enough repetition you will eventually get in front of the the right people for an early stage company that's still trying to prove out the value proposition of their product in my opinion you really only need two or three champions two or three potential customers to validate the product and then once you have the validation the whole process becomes quite a bit easier
0: absolutely hassle is completely required here and by the way the advice to go on conferences is great i've personally seen numerous founders who got their first investments first partners first co-founders First buyers on those conferences, so it might be boring and not as effective now during COVID. Once everything is you know on Zoom, uh, but once the normal life is back, definitely, definitely go to those conferences. Great place to network. So here we're moving back to the GSR Ventures and specifically to the previous investments that is done. So one of the uh, investments that you've done already had an exit, and the question is, would you recommend founders to aim to that exit from day one, or you know, try to accelerate that process in any way, or just you know,
1: try to go with the flow? Sure, it's a great question, and I think it also very much depends on the personal preferences of founders. Uh, in many cases, any significant exit, whether that be a $30 million exit, $100 million exit, or a billion dollar exit, can create significant windfall for the entrepreneurs who, especially for early stage companies, tend to own the majority of the, the company stock between how many of our founders there may be. The, but the real question also is, you know, what kind of impact do you want to have? Um, we at GSR Ventures have a big bias towards looking at outsized transformative impact. And historically, the companies that are most able to do that are the ones that actually scale uh, independently of a large company because they tend to maintain their nimbleness and their ability to adapt to changing circumstances far more efficiently than a much larger company, even if that larger company is well capitalized. So when you Make that personal decision, depending on what sector you're in, you may choose from day one to look at who are the potential acquirers in the space, what would they be looking for from an acquisition, which tends often to be more technology and product than actual commercial traction. Or you can decide to focus on scaling an independent enterprise, focusing on growing commercial traction and building out the business that way. The reason why I encourage you to do that early is because it does actually affect what you focus on as an entrepreneur, what you optimize for and how you build the business. Also, how much capital you take on and what kind of investors you choose to work with. So I think at the end of the day, there's no absolute right or wrong, whether or not you should focus on an exit um, from day one. But I would highly encourage the entrepreneurs to think about what is in their personal ambition, what's in their personal best interest. Uh, and then once they've made that decision, choose how to build a company around that rather than the other way around.
0: Perfect, great advice. And here on that perfect advice, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Sunny, what's the one thing you want the listeners
1: to do as soon as the episode is over? Oh, fantastic. It's a great question. I think, you know, today, especially in the healthcare arena, COVID has just created such tremendous change and disruption across the industry. I think you can't mention COVID without acknowledging the significant pain that it's caused you know, all throughout the world, but it's also created opportunities for entrepreneurs to go out and create that type of transformative impact that I was mentioning. My call to action would be looking at how the world has changed over the last eight months where is one particular area where you think you can make an outsized impact based on your background your experience your skill set and then within that area think about how you can affect that change bring it into reality what you'll find is that more often than not these disruptive events like covid create such unique opportunities that uh, with enough thought and reflection uh, many of your audience listeners will find that they themselves have the opportunity to create a transformative impact if they're if that's their passion.
0: Perfect. That's a really positive call to action. I like it. Uh, and my call to action is going to be go to the description of this episode. I'll leave a bunch of links there. I'll check in with Sonny, by the way, uh, to see if he will recommend any particular resources for you to take a look at. But whatever it is, whatever I'll leave there, it's going to be interesting. So definitely check it out and have a good day.